Welcome to episode 83 of the Star Trek Academy, a podcast about the latest new episodes of Star Trek. Our episode today is season three, episode four of Star Trek Lower Decks, entitled Room for Growth. I'm the philosophy professor, Rodney Cup, And I'm Michael Merrick, the media professor. Follow us on Twitter at Trek underscore Academy. To listen on the web or to subscribe your app to the podcast, go to anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. All right. So our first main order of business is a brief summary of Lower Decks Season 3, Episode 4, Room for Growth. And it's just an overview. But if you're listening down the road a while after this episode is premiered, it will help to refresh your memory. And with that summary, here is Dr. Michael Merrick. After the prologue, in which an ancient mask takes over Captain Freeman, there are two main subplots in this episode. Rutherford and the rest of the engineering team are on the Starfleet medical ship Dove for mandatory stress relief. And we find out that the engineering types really don't like these structured stress relief programs and find their best stress relief by doing innovative and fun engineering projects. We also find that Captain Freeman has been under a huge amount of stress recently. And the other subplot, the three remaining lower deckers learn that quarters have become available on one of the upper decks and will be assigned via a lottery. Mariner, Boimler, and Tendi overhear that the Delta Shift ensigns are going to cheat to rig the lottery and our lower deckers race the Delta Shift through obscure and dangerous parts of Cerritos to get to the place where they can rig the lottery for themselves first. In the end, our heroes find out that it's just one room open, and they decide that if one of them were to get an upper deck room, it would divide their friendship. So they just withdraw, only to find out that Delta Shift did win the lottery, and they're packing all four of their group into one room, which is still better than the bunks in the corridors. So there's a really quick look at the outline of this episode. Delta shift. <laughs> anyway, before we talk about the philosophy, the themes and the morals to this story, here's a few things we saw that seemed significant to us and we'd like to talk about. Yes, and the subplot about trying to rig the room lottery, I have to say it's jammed full of plot devices in the form of all these obstacles the ensigns have to overcome. Now, I'm not complaining about the plot devices. In fact, in this case, they made a pretty good episode, but I still want to recognize them for what they are. Plot devices are things that just are in the story. They're just asserted and uh, are needed to advance the plot, but they're not really explained. And it's a tool that fiction writers use. So as long as the plot device or devices are not overused, they can work fine. Yeah, this almost this episode almost reminded me of you know certain movies out there where our heroes go on a quest for something. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it reminded me of. Now, in this case, I think the plot devices are needed so that the ensigns do have these obstacles because an uneventful crawl through Jeffrey's tubes to avoid detection and easily getting to this, this place they need to be, it wouldn't really make a very fun story. And plus, we've seen that before. I remember Boimler 
you know, trying to get to the bridge to meet Tom Paris and he's got his Paris collector plate, plate yeah. or whatever. Uh, yeah. Do you remember that episode? Yeah. He ran into trouble too. It wasn't yeah. an easy, an easy crawl for him. But the plot devices do raise some questions. When Cerritos turns deflectors up to maximum because of that meteor swarm that's coming, why does that anti-grav room our instants are in suddenly start spinning? Yeah, good it's, question. It's apparently intended to be the room right behind the sensor disk, but why is it anti-grav to begin with? And how does spinning generate deflector power? It's kind of like, why does the USS Discovery have to spin part of its hull in order to do their <laughs> mycelial network jumps? It just is something that that is without explanation. You know, I, and I'm sorry to harp on this again, but I, I feel like a lot of the stuff in Discovery is there because it looks cool. That's well, why it's and, there. You know, maybe that was the point here too. This question of the spinning disc and that—it's similar. You remember Galaxy Quest? Sure. Remember that it's kind of the cliche of the stompy things that they have to run through (laughs) and Gwen DeMarco saying this episode was badly written. Yeah. (laughs) Well, in this case, I'm sure it was a very intentional, a strategic plot device. Sure. And it does have the merit of it shows Tendi and Mariner working together in kind of the crisis to save Boimler. Mm -hmm. And I noted that Mariner is the one who stays back to anchor the line while Tendi is the one that takes the bigger risk to go up on the line to grab Boimler. That's right. And and I'm reminded that Tendi is Orion and apparently has some sort of Orion warrior heritage, even though she wants to kind of be a different kind of person. But in a crunch, she was as badass as Mariner was. And actually a couple different times in this episode, she helped, she really helped save the day. Right. She pulls them out of the swamp room. Yeah, right. that's, I was just going to mention that next. The nitrous oxide gas that in the swamp room, the ensigns get high on, that's commonly known as laughing gas. And, uh, you know, you hear about it used in dentistry sometimes in that. It does cause euphoria and slight hallucinations, maybe not as bad as our ensigns experience, <laughs> but it can be dangerous if used over the long term. We're told that it's the product of the swamp that they didn't know was there. They found a swamp that is used to support the hydroponics deck. It's still another plot device. It creates yet another and somewhat humorous obstacle for the ensigns. You mentioned movies, Rodney. All these obstacles, to be honest, reminded me of the Poseidon adventure. Mm. Have you seen that movie from 1972? As a matter of fact, uh, when I was growing up, we used to watch that. Uh, in the 70s, whenever it came on TV. Yes. I don't think I ever saw it in the theater, but it was the first of a series of disaster movies that were, you know, the ship overturned, uh, skyscraper gets damaged, all that. There's the airport movies, too. Yeah. In the Poseidon Adventure, a luxury ocean liner capsizes due to a plot device tsunami. Mm -hmm. It's (laughs) just there. We don't know why there's a tsunami. It's just there. But also due to a plot device, the ship doesn't sink. It just floats upside down. Mm -hmm. And the survivors are inside the hull and they have to negotiate lots of different plot device obstacles to get to the surface and and save their lives. And some of them survive, some don't. 
And that's basically what's going on in this episode with the obstacles the ensigns encounter as they're sneaking through all the back channels of the ship, just a series of obstacles that they have to encounter and overcome. And really it is the obstacles that are the story as much or more than wanting to reprogram the lottery. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not complaining about all these plot devices. As I said, they're part of a fiction writer's toolkit and they can be used effectively as I think largely they were in this episode, particularly to set up conflict or drama in some fantasy fiction. The entire world building is one gigantic plot device. We don't have to explain why something is, it just is, and then our characters have to have to cope with it. Right. So, some other points to look at here, the ancient mask in the episode teaser and, and the Arce archives, that's a direct reference to the Next Generation episode Masks, in which the Enterprise more or less got turned into an Aztec temple, which is, I must say, one of the more extreme examples in Next Generation of Technobabble space phenomenon causes goofy side effects. Right. right. Uh, Captain Freeman notes that for Cerritos, this was the third ancient mask incident, and they need to tighten their procedures. Remember, we saw last season that away team members just seem to accumulate dangerous artifacts, which ensigns need to go through periodically and clean out. That's right. That's right. Don't put on the masks. Don't do it. A few other short things, quick quick takes here. Uh, Taz, who's in charge of the dove, is an Idosian with three That's arms, right. as was Eric's in the animated series, the original animated series. And I think, if I remember right, this is the third time we've seen an Idosian in Lower Decks. One of the other obstacles we haven't mentioned so far is a holodeck program used by Shax and Ta'ana. Uh, and it's one of the obstacles the instance have to negotiate. It's a Depression-era bank robbery program, which is in some ways a little reminiscent of Dixon Hill, but Shax and Ta'ana are kind of playing Bonnie and Clyde-type bank robbers, and it was interesting that the whole holodeck program was in black and white, including the people the people in it. Yeah, that's right. And um, it gave us a look into uh, Shax and Ta'ana's relationship it also gave the writers an opportunity to insert something that was pretty racy. Yeah, but it, but it was also humorous. It was, you know, each of these obstacles had a bit of humor associated with them. Tendi's suggestion that the door access should be enter friend, that's clearly taken from Tolkien in Lord of the Rings. The doors to the mines of Moria carry that message in Elfish that translates as speak friend and enter, say the word friend. Hmm. and the doors will open. So that that obviously came from Tolkien. And I also noticed that the Delta Shift ensigns, the three of them that we saw mainly on screen, were visually, they were counterparts to our ensigns. Did you notice that? Tendi, of course, has green hair and skin, and one of the Delta ensigns has red hair and a very red skin tone. The male ensign has (laughs) hair that's very similar to Boimler's, except the front goes down rather than up. And they all have very similar facial shapes. We even see near the end of the episode, we see the fourth Delta Ensign during the reception, seen briefly at the end. He has an eye patch that parallels <laughs> Rutherford's Borg eye implant. Well, how um, about that? So, yeah. And then finally, for this section of the podcast, did you note Boimler saying that 
fortune favors the bold. Sure. This is bold Boimler now, right? This might be, it might be a really, really deep dive Easter egg. Now, it might just be my imagination, but it is related to bold Boimler. And pardon if I'm going to go down a slight rabbit hole here, but there was this TV show, Nebula 9, about Captain Max Reynard and his crew of Academy cadets who see the Earth destroyed, and they and their ship are all that's left of humanity and have to battle some very bad guy aliens. You've heard of Nebula 9, right, Rodney? Nope. That's because it existed only in an episode of the American TV series Castle. Oh. A a 2012 episode entitled The Final Frontier, in which mystery writer Richard Castle and police detective Kate Beckett investigate a murder at a science fiction convention. Okay. (laughs) One of the displays is about the fictional because it was fictional in castle and fictional because castle is fictional about this supposed tv series nebula nine jonathan frakes directed the episode oh okay rob bowman who directed 13 next generation episodes was a castle executive producer Mm -hmm. and i think there were others who had star trek credentials that were part of castle and so nebula nine as seen in castle is overtly inspired by firefly Probably elements from Blake 7 and other series, too. But remember that Nathan Fillion starred in both Castle and Firefly. That's right. And my point is that Nebula 9 Captain Max Renard's catchphrase, as we learned about it in Castle, was, let fortune favor the bold. Okay. Now, I have to be fair. Fortune favors the bold is a translation of a Latin proverb, Pliny the Younger, quotes his father, Pliny the Elder, as using the phrase. It's often a slogan of military units around the world. But I've got to believe that the Star Trek production team and the Lower Decks production team and writers were aware of its use in Castle Mm -hmm. because of the way that people with pretty prominent Star Trek credentials were also uh, Castle production staff. And so it may be a castle nebula nine reference at least we'll see how sustainable bold boimler really is mariner thinks that it's not sustainable but we will see how that plays out in coming episodes yeah i mean she's they're worried i guess i'm worried you'd think maybe in the season finale boimler may become too bold and uh endanger himself but that was a deep dive michael we needed scuba equipment for that one uh but that was interesting (laughs) Yeah. And um, so why don't we go ahead and talk about meaning here? And we're talking specifically about messages that the writers or producers might have wanted to convey in this episode, or maybe even if they didn't, maybe they're messages that an audience can take away from them. Two subplots in this episode, right, Michael? Yeah. And neither has a really overt philosophical message. I think there are some messages here. Yeah. But one of the subplots has a more direct message than the other, I think. I don't necessarily see an overt message in this mandatory relaxation subplot, mm-hmm. but I couldn't help think about how it seems to be similar to corporate retreats and other like business team building activities and things. Oh, right. Does anybody really like those things? Particularly the more artificial they are, you know, I... I don't know. You go along 
just to be a team player. And that's kind of what the engineering staff did because they wanted to, to please the captain. But, you know, it obviously wasn't working for them. We see that the Cerritos engineers prefer to relax by creating innovative technology, yeah. like doing cool stuff, basically. Yeah. For them, creativity and engineering is enjoyable and bringing it to successful fruition is, is relaxing. Now, Jordi LaForge is mentioned in the episode, but right. I think that their attitude sounds more like Scotty. Yes, I agree. Remember in one episode, I, I can't remember for sure. I think it was the trouble with Tribbles where Scotty actually gets confined to quarters as a disciplinary thing. Right. Uh, but he was happy about it because he could catch up on reading his engineering journals. That's right. Yeah. He threw the first punch. Right. I, I, and I think I think that's the episode that this yep. interaction was in. Yeah. I, I looked this up at one point in that episode. Kirk sees Scotty uh, reading a technical journal and he asks him, don't you ever relax? And Scotty says, I am relaxing. You know, I've known a lot of engineers, particularly you might say electrical engineer type engineers. And in fact, one thing that does cause engineering types to experience stress is other people messing up their equipment. Mm. Kind of like an ancient mask turning everything into a temple <laughs> yeah. and that. Engineering types, they like it when the equipment is very well maintained. They, they mm -hmm. maintain it very well, and they like it when it works just exactly the way it's supposed to. Stress is when something messes that up. So for me, this mandatory relaxation subplot is about the way we put cookie-cutter expectations on others and assuming we know what's best for someone else. Mm. I can see connections all through society, and there are certainly a lot of examples in American politics. I don't want to dive too deeply into actual politics right now, but people setting rules or expectations for others. I mean, even interpersonally, I had a fellow faculty member once criticize me for not attending more football games because hmm. his gender stereotypes said I should find going to football games enjoyable. Sorry, mm -hmm. it's not my thing. As an introvert, I don't seek out noisy crowds. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I went to my daughter's volleyball game just yesterday, and holy cow, was it loud in there. A little too loud for me. Yeah. So now, is this an intended message from the writers, or is it just something that made a connection for me? I think if hmm. it was intended, it might be a little bit more overt. But in some ways, it doesn't really matter. Any given work may have intended messages. And by that, I mean, you know, Star Trek episodes, whatever, books, short stories, movies. There may be intended messages, but we're also allowed to take away our own meaning from it. Absolutely. In a way, once the work is out there and finished, it's its own independent entity. And we can analyze it, look at it in isolation from the creator's intent or meaning or what have you. Here's a possible message for this episode. When people are allowed to do what they truly love, it isn't work. <laughs> but that's pretty trite. Maybe what they want to say is that people should be allowed to do what they truly love. And a lot of people in this economy don't get to do that. And maybe we'd all be better off if they could do what they love, all of us. But, you know, that's kind of tried also. So there's not really anything I feel like that's kind of meaty and deep here. You know, Rodney, from the philosophical perspective, you often talk about the ethics of self-determination. And yeah. so 
I mean, that ties into what you've just said and self-determination or the merits, uh, the need for self-determination by people has certainly been a Star Trek message over the years. Yeah, absolutely. Ever since season one of the original series. Definitely. I think that there is maybe a little bit more defined message in the other subplot about the ensigns competing with Delta Shift to get the vacant room. Right. Originally, they think it's multiple rooms, and it turns out it's only one. In both cases, they're breaking the rules, similar to Kirk reprogramming the Kobayashi Maru test. Mm -hmm. And so at face value, they're being unethical. Tendi acknowledges that, calling it a gray area. It isn't really a gray area. It's mm-hmm. it's cheating. It's out cheating out and out. Our instance end up not doing it because they decide they don't want to break up their friendship. And that is a meritorious outcome. But their intent to begin with is not ethical. No, that's a good point. It helps to remind them of the value of, of their friendships with each other. Now, you might wonder why Tendi thinks this is a, an ethical gray area. Mariner tries to justify this by claiming that the room lottery itself is cheating because lower deckers never seem to get the fancy rooms. But that justification is pretty dubious, of course. Now, you know, Starfleet is a meritocracy. Any military type organization essentially is. Those who show themselves to be talented or have ability move ahead. They're not supposed to be looking for workarounds or ways to game the system. And anytime this attitude has shown up in lower decks over the years, it's been shown to be a negative. Now, in this case, they're not trying to game the system to advance in rank, although we've had some references to that in various episodes, but they are trying to game the system in order to have the more prestigious and the more beneficial accommodations on higher decks that don't really go with their current rank and uh, level of advancement. Right. I think it is a message in this episode that Boimler, Mariner, and Tendi decide to stay together and not risk having divided living accommodations because they value their friendship. Even Mariner thinks this is important. And remember that she has avoided friendships because she said friends tend to leave, such as being transferred away to another ship. And so she has tended to avoid friendships, but she has opened up to the three other lower deckers. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't think she would have said something like that in season one, would she have? I don't, I don't think so. This is a, she's a, allowing herself to be a little vulnerable here. It is a character development arc I think we're seeing with her. We will see yeah. how far it goes whenever the final season of Lower Decks comes along. For me, I'm not sure this episode has much in the way of a, a message, but I liked it because this Dove subplot contains this brilliant irony that I really liked. So the engineers, they're sent to the Dove because they've been working so hard and they need to stop working. They need a break, right? But they and Captain Freeman are treated like an engineering problem, aren't they? That's interesting. Engineering, the boil down the definition of engineering is designing a system to address defined requirements. Something you need to be able to do, you design a system. And it could be, you know, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, they even mm-hmm. talk about educational engineering of designing curriculum. But mm-hmm. yeah, there's a perceived problem here, which may or may not be real. And it is a system that has been designed to address 
the perceived problem. Right. Okay. There you go. All right. I like that. So Captain Freeman, she's being treated for her stress. And we hear that the puppy level in that room is at maximum. And they've even added a few rabbits, but it's had no effect on Freeman. It almost sounds like something an engineer would say to the captain of a starship, right? And Taz says that she may have to send Freeman to Earth for a full medical diagnostic, right? And when the engineers create a machine that removes stress, it makes us, well, it made me realize that the Dove itself is a machine that has been engineered to reduce stress, right? So the people who are trying to get the engineers to stop engineering are themselves stressed out engineers. And actually their engineering design is not very granular. It's really a broad brush generic approach <laughs> as, as opposed to something customized to the, the individual people. Did you notice what Taz did when confronted with this technology that would render her ship unneeded? She yeah, suppressed she, it. She, yeah. Yeah, she had it ejected. She was being self-serving as opposed to serving others. And it's kind of similar to, I think it was last season's episode. Remember the one in which there was a Starfleet consultant testing the crew and set them up to fail in order to prove right. that her job was valuable? Again, not very worthy and not really in the, the service spirit uh, of Starfleet. Yeah, and that has to be drummed out here. And who knows what's going to happen to Taz, but this does give me an opportunity to segue into a discussion of the title, Room for Growth. And one meaning of that phrase is the ability to move upwards or advance within a company. So I think that's what Taz maybe is doing here. Taz ejects the relaxation machine into space, like you pointed out, I think ensuring that demand for her services will persist and therefore the Dove's role in Starfleet will be preserved and there's an opportunity there for growth, right? Yeah. And she's gaming that meritocracy system. Yes. Yeah. Not acceptable. And the title could also refer to the ensigns who are trying to move up in a certain way. You're pointing out that, you know, maybe... You know, Starfleet being a meritocracy, they haven't earned those rooms quite yet. But that's what they're trying to do in a way. They're moving up by gaining or trying to get this fancier room, like the ones the higher ranking officers enjoy. So maybe that's what the deal is with that title. And then kind of finally for this section of the podcast, there's that scene in which our lower deck ensigns appear to be bonding with the Delta Shift ensigns. Mm -hmm. Because of a plot device, the door out of the chamber they're in only opens so often and they have to sit right. and wait. Another plot device. But as soon as the door does open, the Delta shifters just run off. And it's not completely clear. Were they faking it the entire time or at the last second did they just give in to temptation? What do you think? Well, at first I thought they were faking it. But now that I'm thinking about it, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I do remember... Several years ago, I was talking to someone and they were telling me about an industrial setting in which multiple shifts essentially shared the same manufacturing equipment. I don't know exactly what kind of equipment it was, but one of these big devices that, you know, the, the people run. And the, the person told me that each shift always tended to blame the other shift or other shifts if the equipment had problems, you know, oh, those guys, you know, um, <laughs> 
night shift last night. They messed this up. Yep. And we're seeing a very similar dynamic in, in Cerritos of, you know, they should, and in the best tradition of Starfleet, they should be seeing each other as partners, as yeah, backing each other true. up and things. And we had some hints of willingness to do that in this one scene. But again, the Delta shifters ran off and left our ensigns in the lurch. Lower deckers need to do a better job of sticking together, I think, don't they? I think it would help them all succeed and therefore be positioned for advancement. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) All right, then. How about some final thoughts here, Michael? What do you think? I've been thinking about, and I, I alluded to it earlier, I've been thinking about this question of Mariner avoiding friendships because her friends tend to leave her. Mm-hmm. In a military-style organization, there's this thing called permanent change of station, PCS. And PCSs are common. Typically, every three years or so, someone moves to a different, maybe a different military base or, or whatever. And so in an active duty type military setting, you tend to make friends and have, have work colleagues in that. And then transfers separate you. And in today's era, you know, we have ubiquitous communication. It's easier to stay in touch than in years past, but it's still, it's never really the same. You know, best friends while you're at the same place kind of become social media acquaintances. You don't Mm -hmm. have much contact with them. And I've been kind of thinking about this dynamic with respect to, to Mariner. In the past, I've speculated that something big happened to her to make her avoid friendships. Yeah. And I've, I've wondered if maybe, you know, she's mentioned being on Murapente, uh, maybe something related to imprisonment there. But now I wonder if it's just this experience of being separated from friends. At the academy, remember, she was at the top of her class and really had tight relationships with her classmates and That's was right. seen as a mentor and very supportive. But then all of them graduated and I'm sure pretty much all went their own ways. And for someone who apparently really thrived on those classmate relationships, I can see maybe that Mariner was affected more than most. Maybe that in and of itself was what made her wall herself off. The loss of those close friendships from the academy when they got out into the, into the real world of, of Starfleet. I mean, we've seen a few times that her brash exterior hides a much more vulnerable internal self. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if that is just the dynamic right there. As the Lower Deck series progresses, she is slowly coming out of that shell, at least with respect to the three others on her shift. So I, I wonder how that will play out. I'm looking forward to learning more of her backstory in the episode later this season in which Cerritos visits Deep Space Nine because Mariner has said that she was once stationed there. That's right. And uh, so I'm looking forward to learning more about that backstory. Yeah, me too. And in additional support for it, you remember how upset she was when Boimler accepted that transfer to the Titan. Yeah. She was so angry and felt betrayed. Mm -hmm. Um, Yep. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the backstory is there. And, And they're taking their time telling it. I'm sure we'll get it eventually, but that's okay. Well, that just about does it for another podcast. I'd like to thank you for joining us. And we ask you to watch for announcements on our Twitter feed at 
Trek underscore Academy. And remember that our website is anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. You can listen there or find links to subscribe your podcatching app. Thanks again for being here and we'll see you next time for episode five of Star Trek Lower Decks.